If uh, you have your Bibles, you can grab those. And I'm going to actually invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 19 if you have them. This morning we're launching into a new series um, called Walking in Relationships. And the next portion of Ephesians chapter 5 and into chapter 6 in particular begin to deal with uh, relationships. The relationship of a husband and wife, the relationship of parents and children, the relationships of uh, employees and employer. And kind of as a segue into the book of Ephesians, we're not going to go there today. We're going to look at husbands and wives uh, in a couple weeks' time. This morning, I really want to set the table for a discussion on relationships and, and arguably the, the primary human relationship that God has given to us. Winston Churchill was once at a dinner party, and uh, it was recorded that as he was sitting there uh, around the table with the dinner guest, other dinner guests, they began to discuss, one of the, the dinner guests, one of the people at his table had su- suggested that they play a little game and was wondering who each of the people at the table might want to be if they were given a second life. If you were to come back after you died, who would you want to be? And everybody went around the table and gave their, their answers. And by the time it got to Winston Churchill, uh, Winston Churchill, if you don't know, was a man who was very gifted with wit and rhetoric. He was really, really sharp with his words. He simply said, if I was to come back in a second life, I would love to come back as Lady Churchill's second husband. Some of you are gonna take that in for a second. I think he scored some points. It's clear that he valued marriage. It's clear that he loved his wife. And the word of God values marriage even more so. In fact, if you were to look throughout scripture, you would see that the theme of marriage is incredibly important for tying the whole Bible together. The Bible begins with marriage, and it ends with marriage. And all the way through, God describes his relationship with his people with marriage language. We know that the church is considered by God to be the very bride of Jesus Christ. We know that Israel was talked about as the bride of God. And it's helpful for us to continually come back to this subject because it is so important, because it is so meaningful in the context of the word of God, because it's so practical for our lives, we need to come back to it over and over again. And in fact, we are coming back to really a section of scripture, what we're gonna be looking at today. We've actually looked at in this church before, a couple years ago, We went back to the foundations of marriage, and for some of you, this is going to be somewhat familiar, but I trust it's gonna be helpful nonetheless. Some of you are in here and you're not married, and you long to be married, and for some of you, it's it's a painful topic, but I trust that this will be encouraging for you to consider marriage. Some of you were married and widowed, and you're not looking to marry again, but you can certainly be aware of what God's word teaches about marriage so that you can be serving those in the church family who are. Wherever you're at in life, whether your marriage is really strong this morning or whether it's really weak and struggling, I trust that you're going to be encouraged to look fresh at what marriage is from God's perspective. And I think it's all the more important that we do that regularly because we are bombarded with a secular understanding of marriage that has really bred, I think, not only in the lives of unbelievers but in the lives of believers, much confusion and much chaos. I think sometimes we subtly embrace the world's perspectives on marriage and relationships. 
And often we drift far away from God's designs or we have forgotten perhaps what God's perspective is on marriage. Many of us haven't had good role models or mentors. Some of us did not receive premarital counseling or if we did, we were so googly-eyed with our spouse we forget everything that was taught to us. There are many people who are silently struggling in broken marriages frustrated, angry, hurt, and tired. I'm just convinced that one of the greatest problems facing our marriages is the failure to understand the biblical foundations of marriage. We constantly need to be brought back there. We do not know what marriage is, and therefore we do not know why it exists, but I trust this morning God will remind us of both of these things or teach them to us if we are unaware of them. So for some of us this morning, this is gonna be a bit of a checkup. For some of us, this is gonna be a bit of a tune-up in our marriages. For some of us, this is just gonna be simply put very helpful in preparing us for a marriage that will honor the Lord or prepare us to serve those who are married in our midst. I wanna begin by giving you the the first point, and we're gonna jump into the scripture in just a moment here, but bear with me a little bit longer. I think it's first essential that we understand marriage, what is it? That's the question that we need to first ask and then answer. What is marriage? Because there's so much confusion, we need to be clear about what marriage actually is. You see, without a correct definition of marriage, everything we will build on will be faulty. If the foundation is faulty, then the entire structure will be faulty. There's so many of us who have built marriages already on, if I can use the biblical analogy for the Christian life or the unbelieving life, on sinking sand. It's especially important for us as Western culture presses into us, even now, for the radical redefinition of marriage. You see, the reason our culture can redefine marriage is because they are starting from a very different premise than we are starting from. Our society believes that marriage is a contract that is established by mankind, which essentially evolves to meet the needs of our changing society. Sociologists claim that marriage originated mainly from pragmatic and economic reasons. It's perceived essentially as nothing more than a social convention, a social construct, something invented by mankind, and that means that then people are free to redefine the marriage contract to meet their evolving needs. It can never be static, it is always dynamic and in flux, based on the culture that we live in. I love what Tim Keller points out as well, that there's other significant factors um, related to the shift that began over a century ago as people began to think of marriage from the standpoint of personal fulfillment, with very little concern for duty or the benefits of a stable marriage to the community, things that were always present in previous generations. And the results that we see are, are really staggering. When we think about the breakdown of marriage, all we have to do is look at the divorce rates that have skyrocketed. No-fault divorce rates uh, are, are pushed divorce in general through the roof. Staggering numbers of people are divorcing every year. And, and as well, staggering numbers of people are cohabitating before marriage and choosing to cohabitate instead of marriage. In some cases, there is utter disdain for marriage. There are some in our culture who don't just want to redefine marriage, they want to do away with marriage altogether because they believe it's actually damaging to their personal autonomy and personal freedom. But you see, if you remove divine authority from human relationships, then anything goes. 
Anyone has the ability to determine the boundaries, the markers, the indicators for what marriage is to be and what it should look like. And what's interesting is when you look at Matthew chapter 19, what we see is Jesus actually coming back to the foundational reality of marriage and its divine authority. Now he does so kind of in a roundabout way. You see Jesus in Matthew chapter 19 is being put on the spot like he constantly was by the Pharisees. And in this chapter in particular, they're trying to challenge Jesus and trap him as they always did It tells us that large crowds were following him and he had healed people. So the Pharisees in verse three, it says, came up to him and they tested him by asking this question, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? They think they've got Jesus in the crosshairs because they know that scripture actually permits divorce. And yet they understand that divorce is not what God wants. And his answer is so stunning. Look at what he says in verse four. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, notice that word, made them male and female. By the way, if you wanna know what Jesus thinks about masculinity and femininity and whether or not that's a social construct, here's the answer right here. That from the beginning God made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And here they think they're gonna trap him. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Look at Jesus' answer. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but... From the beginning, it was not so. In other words, Jesus says, if you really wanna understand marriage, not just divorce and the reality of, of that problem in society, but if you wanna understand marriage, you need to go right back to the beginning and you need to see what God thinks of marriage because God is the one who created it and designed it from the very beginning. Jesus quotes directly from the book of Genesis and he establishes the baseline for understanding marriage. It's the authority of God's word. It's the bedrock foundation of God and his word. So with that in mind, let's go back to Genesis. Flip back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter two. And if we grasp this, we can begin to understand and maybe reorient our perspective of marriage back towards what God has established from the beginning. I love what Ray Orland Jr. says, in light of the divine authority, for marriage, he says, marriage is not a human invention. It is divine revelation. Its design never was our own made up arrangement of infinite malleability. It was given to us at the beginning of all things as a rightly shining fixity of eternal significance. He says, we have no right to redefine it and we have every reason to revere it. And that's what Jesus reminds us of, that there is a sacredness to marriage. There is an eternal significance to marriage that needs to be seen and understood if we are going to have marriages that are built on a solid foundation. And so we go back from the words of Jesus all the way to where Jesus was in Genesis chapter two. We see really the paradigm for marriage 
being expressed. In verse 18 of chapter two, notice this, then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And we know the story about how God then takes Adam and he puts him to sleep and he makes out of his rib a woman. But before that, one of the things we see is that God wanted to create the sense of how right this was even in the heart and mind of Adam. And so God takes all of the animals and parades them in front of Adam. They come two by two, each one of them with one that fits the other. And as Adam goes through this process, he begins to realize that he, he is alone and there's no one for him. And so this is when God produces or creates Eve out of Adam and brings Eve to Adam where he bursts out into this songs of praise. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And here, verse 24 is really the the flagship verse when it comes to marriage. This is the verse that Jesus quotes. This is the verse that Paul quotes on two separate occasions, once in Ephesians and once in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Everything flows from here, Genesis 2.24. So let's establish a a baseline definition of marriage based on this passage right here and based on the words of Jesus. Here it is, it'll be on the screen behind me uh, so that if you wanna write it down, you can. Marriage is a lifelong covenant of companionship between a man and a woman that has been established under God and before the community. We can leave it up there for a few minutes so we can just keep coming back to that and keep remembering what we're drawing upon. The very first kind of part of that definition is so critical to understand that marriage is a lifelong covenant of companionship. Covenant language needs to define and help us understand and help us to cement the foundation for our marriages. You see, marriage in the Bible is not considered a consumer relationship, it is considered a covenant relationship. A covenant is really a strong word for a binding oath or a binding promise. And covenant is so significant in, in marriage, really it's, it's how we establish our relationship with one another, but the reason that we establish this covenant relationship with, with one another is because we actually already relate to God in the context of covenant. Marriage actually parallels in this covenant relationship how God has intended to relate to his created beings. All throughout the scripture, what we see is covenant is incredibly important for how people relate to God. And people would often in the ancient uh, Near East culture, they would do what they called a cutting a covenant where they would make these binding promises to one another and, and they were so serious and so solemn that they would take these animals and they would cut them in half and they would take one half of the animal and put it on one side and the other half and put it on the other side and then both parties involved in making the covenant would walk between the animal to signify how serious this was. It was essentially saying, if I, if I fail to uphold the standards of this covenant, may this be done to me. Covenants were ratified. And here we see that we enter into a a covenant which makes 
the significance of a relationship that much more meaningful. The idea here being expressed in Genesis 2.24 that they shall leave their father and mother and hold fast, or, or some translations say they shall cleave to one another is also significant in terms of covenant language. Cleaving, you see, speaks to being glued together. The word is used in secular uh, literature, ancient literature, to describe a, a, a soldier who had gone out into battle and he had held his sword and fought with his sword for so long that his hand was, was essentially welded to the sword itself, had to kind of pry his fingers off of. It speaks to the sense of the permanence that is required. And by the way, that goes right back to what Jesus said. From the beginning, marriage was always intended to be permanent. Divorce was never a part of God's plan for couples. It was intended to have a permanency built into it based on this covenant that had been made. And the biblical word here means to, the, to be cleaving, to hold fast, to unite to someone through this covenant, this binding promise or this oath. And every covenant came with covenant responsibilities that had blessings for obedience or curses for disobedience, results or consequences. And here, this marriage covenant comes with responsibilities, it comes with rights, and it comes with privileges. You see, there's a legal, binding, intimate, and public relationship that you went into that is exclusive and lifelong and is ratified by symbolic means. What I find so fascinating here is that we see the significance of this wedding before God. As God establishes this wedding, as he officiates this first wedding, he reminds us of its significance. And we, we love to use symbolic means to demonstrate how significant our, our vows are. You'll notice that whenever a wedding is done, following the vows, immediately following the vows is the exchange of rings, right? And the ring in of itself doesn't mean anything. It's it's the symbol of what it points to that's so significant. We take these rings and we give them to one another and, and one of the things that I ask when I do a wedding is, is I ask to take this ring you know, and to repeat after me as they place this ring on the finger of their, their spouse, their new spouse. And one of the things they say is I give you this ring as a symbol and pledge of my love to you this day. The symbolic nature of this ring is important. It's round, showing this unending circle of love. It's made of precious metal, or at least they used to be. But the idea was that there was an, an exchange of purity that was being communicated. And, and you notice how you take the ring and you place it on the finger of the other person. In other words, you're, you're giving the ring to them in the same way you're communicating, I'm giving myself to you. I am yours forever. The symbol helps us remember the covenant. And people see it and they see that it was serious, right? They knew it was serious, so they put a ring on it. <laughs> this covenantal relationship, listen, is both vertical and horizontal. It, it does have a, a horizontal aspect. We're going into a covenant relationship with another human being, but one of the things you need to see from this definition is that it is also vertical in nature. By God's design, this relationship isn't just simply between the two individuals standing up in front of people, it's actually between God himself. It's taking place under God. This is so significant. The moment that the couple exchanges vows, I love to remind couples of this in the, in the, you know, the, 
the, the kind of lead up into the wedding, but in the moment they're taking their vows, this is so solemn and it's so serious, not just because the words that they're saying, but because God is actually involved in what's taking place. So many couples put so much emphasis on all the trappings of the wedding. Is this so, honestly, I think this is so backwards in our culture. It's all about the party, it's all about the fun, it's all about having a good time, and really the most valuable part, the most important part of every wedding ceremony is the exchange of vows. This is the commitment to one another before God. This covenant between a husband and wife is made before God. This is why the vows at a wedding are so serious. Your vows are statements of entering into that covenant. You're making this binding public. By the way, the public natures of weddings are important. Historically, weddings always took place in a public setting. You say, is that really that important? Yes, yes, the wedding was never just about you. The wedding was a reminder to the community about God's covenant with his people. It was a safeguard to protect the couple as well, where people witnessed and participated in the wedding as an accountability for that couple, as an encouragement for that couple, to come alongside that couple. Biblically speaking, marriage is far less private than some of us want it to be. God knows that relationships must be based on this deeper sense of commitment and covenant is so crucial to understand. You see, if you build your relationship upon something other than covenant, you're building it upon sinking sand. If you build your relationship, for example, upon feelings and emotions, guess what? Those things will fade or change over time based on circumstances and different situations. If you base your marriage and your love for one another simply on affection and romance, those things, I hate to break it to you, some of you young people out there, those things fade over time and and they ebb and flow in seasons of life. If you base your relationship on somebody else's performance or on their personality or something else that's, that's trivial like that, then guess what? They're going to let you down. You're building on sinking sand and the foundation is cracked already and the house will eventually crumble. It must be built on covenant. It must be built on this, this significant commitment to one another and to God. Every once in a while you hear people say things like this. In our culture, this is a common phrase. Well, I don't need a piece of paper to love you. I don't need to to have a a legal marriage to show you how much I love you. And and that's the way they kind of skate around the legal marriage and they decide instead to maybe live together. Listen, this is based upon the assumption that love is simply a feeling or a romantic passion or some kind of affection that you have for one another. But here's what you need to understand. When the Bible speaks of love, it measures it primarily not by how much you want to receive, but by how much you are willing to give yourself to someone else. How much are you willing to sacrifice? How much, here's where it really comes, how much freedom and independence are you willing to lay aside for this other individual? So you see, when somebody actually disparages the piece of paper, when they actually disparage marriage itself, this is not an expression of how much they love the other person, it's an expression of how much they actually love themselves. When you are unwilling to give, you see, this is what, that legal binding yourself to one another, it's an expression of love where you are declaring, I love you so much, I'm cutting myself off from any other potential relationship. I am binding myself to you. There's no way I'm going anywhere else. I'm giving myself to you completely. 
unreservedly. You see, this piece of paper doesn't make it less intimate, it actually makes it more intimate. Wedding vows are not a declaration of simply present love, but they are a mutually binding promise of future love. I will love you no matter what. All right, that's what marriage is, at least essentially at a foundational level. level. So let's ask this next question. Marriage, why is it? Why did God give us marriage? What is marriage for? And for that, we're gonna continue to look at Genesis chapter two and maybe branch into chapter one a little bit, but what is marriage for? That's the real question. Again, my suspicion is that for many of us, we would actually answer in a way that, that is less biblical and maybe perhaps reflects more of a worldly perspective. Why do we get married in the first place? A legal scholar, John Witt Jr. says this, he says that the earlier ideals of marriage are slowly giving way to a new reality of marriage as a terminal sexual contract designed for the gratification of the individual parties. Marriage, in other words, is seen as a contract between two parties for mutual individual growth and satisfaction. It's really about what I get out of this deal when I enter into it. That means that most people get married for themselves, not to fulfill responsibilities to God or society, and not ultimately to serve somebody else. You know, there's kind of a a silent clause, I think, that is added to many marriage vows. And you think of the marriage vows that you took and, and maybe the, the standard marriage vows that you hear, you know, where, where you're standing up in front of God and, and a pastor and the church and you say the words, you know, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live or until I'm no longer happy. That's the silent clause. That's the silent clause in many people's marriages. I'll I'll agree to these things until I'm no longer happy and satisfied, and then, and just think about how ironic this is, and then I'm free to do as much damage as I want to everybody else around me. Because that's what happens when you choose to live for yourself and your own personal happiness. Somebody inevitably gets hurt in the process. You're gonna hurt your spouse, you're gonna destroy your kids, you're gonna do significant damage especially to those you claim to love the most. Our perspective, so often in marriage, is that this should make me happy. You exist to make me happy, that's why I married you, didn't you know that? Or, sometimes I think with good motivation, we communicate, I exist to make you happy. I think sometimes there's this very real a noble sort of, I wanna make you happy. You know, I I love doing weddings, and I've mentioned this before, I really do enjoy doing weddings, and I love going to weddings, believe it or not, but I I, I often, I I cringe, I cringe when I hear couples, you know, again, like, I I get it, 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 you know, this is the happiest day of your life, yada, 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 you know. (laughs) I love you, honey, my day was amazing. (laughs) But you know, every once in a while, in their vows or in their speeches they make to one another in front of everybody, they'll look at each other in the eyes and, and they'll say something like, I am gonna make you the happiest person in the world. And I just, I sh- I just wanna stand up and go, objection! <laughs> like, Take it back right now! You can't do that! Right, all you just be married for two weeks and then come back and tell me really, really how you think that's going. Like, I'm gonna make them so. 
meh, kind of sometimes. You can't do that because you're not God. (laughs) And listen, I, I don't care how charming you are, how romantic you are, how passionate you are, how smart and affectionate you are, how awesome and well-meaning you are. You can't do what God can do. Do you want to know what the number one justification for divorce is? I deserve to be happy. That's it. And by the way, I'm not saying you won't be happy in marriage. By the grace of God, you will be very happy most of the time but your spouse is not Jesus. And the source of fulfillment and satisfaction for the depth of your being must be Jesus. If you try to make it your spouse, you actually place them in the impossible position of bearing the weight and the expectations that only God can bear. And eventually, they will buckle under it and so will your marriage. See, our aim, if we're gonna understand what marriage is for, we need to do this first. Our aim is to cultivate deep friendship. That's the first thing. One of the things we see in Genesis chapter two, in verse 18, is that the Lord God had said, it is not good that man should be alone. That's a staggering statement when you think of it, especially in light of sometimes our overly spiritualized kind of conversations. And even in, in, in light of what I just said, listen, I understand that only God can do for us what God can do for us. Only God can be our ultimate source of happiness, but that does not mean we don't need one another. In fact, sometimes in our kind of over spiritual thinking or language, we'll tell people, all you need is God. That's the only thing you need. And, and at a certain level, that is true. That's what you need. You, you need, and in fact, many people never get married until they learn this lesson, that their ultimate contentment is found first in the Lord. So often God will withhold a spouse for you because you haven't learned this primary lesson. And as soon as you get this, God's like, now you're ready. Now you're ready. When, when your contentment is in me, when, when you're looking to me for your ultimate satisfaction and happiness, now you're ready to be able to treat your spouse the way you should, to look at them and to see them the way you should, not as the ultimate source of your satisfaction and happiness. Now, that is not to say that there isn't some satisfaction and happiness. What we see here is that, that you know, th- this idea that all we need is God, the problem with that is that's not what God says himself. God says it is not good for man to be alone. It's not good for humanity. That's not just men, ladies, you too. You see, the creation account implies, again, that our intense relational capacity, created and actually given to us by God, was not fulfilled completely by our vertical relationship with him. Isn't that interesting to think about? God designed us to need horizontal relationships with other human beings. That does not mean you have to get married to enjoy this, by the way. Anything that excludes Jesus is problematic in our theology, amen? Like Jesus was perfectly satisfied and happy and he was an unmarried. Paul, the apostle, likely unmarried as well. Followers of Jesus need to understand this. Listen, singleness can be a divinely ordained way to live, but single or married, you and I were made to be in relationships. We're created for community, 
And one of the main ways to experience that is marriage. And God here, it says, creates for Adam. He sees, him, uh, he sees him alone and he says, I will make him a helper fit for him. That's such an important word in the, the Hebrew language. The word helper there actually means companion, helper or companion, a friend, a companion, a friend right? God's answer, contrary to the world, is if, if you're lonely, don't get a dog, get a spouse. This is what God actually designs. When the man sees the woman and he responds in poetry, some of us husbands could take some notes, but the words that he sees here, as he sees, this is my helper, this is the one, the, the word can actually be translated to perfect completer. He says this, at last, can you hear the language? At last, finally, I've looked at all these animals and I've seen that they all have one that fits them perfectly and then here I've been, I'm, I'm, I'm in one sense satisfied in God, yes, but I feel this void, this gaping void. There, then as he says, the last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Some see this as meaning something like this. Meeting you fills a void in me. Jerry Maguire, he got one thing right, kind of. There is a sense in which we are designed to complete one another. And God gives marriage as a means of enjoying a deep and intimate companionship and friendship. In fact, you could argue that this is primary in every relationship marriage relationship. Here's what this means, just really practically. Some of you are single in here and you're looking for a spouse and you're wondering who you should be looking for. The answer is this, you should be looking for somebody who's going to be an incredible friend. Not just the most attractive person you can find, not the, just the smartest person you find, but somebody who there's, there's meaningful chemistry with and a real friendship with. If you're married, here's what this means for you, that your spouse is to be your closest friend. It's to be the primary relationship in your life that you invest time and energy and effort into. It's to be the relationship that you enjoy most in your life. And I just, I need to kind of reiterate this. If this is true, there is no other relationship in your life that should take more of your time, more of your energy, and more of your investment this relationship matters so much to God, and the enjoyment of this relationship is solely dependent upon investing the necessary energy and time into. Great marriages don't just happen. They don't. Every good marriage you have seen or witnessed is a product of intentionality. It is the product of perseverance. It's the product of blood, sweat, and lots of tears. And if you're not doing that, then you can't expect to enjoy the proximity and the closeness of relationship that God longs for you to have. So some of you, what you need to hear today is this. There needs to be a ramping up of the intentionality to foster a meaningful relationship with your spouse. Some of you in here are actually living with your spouse like they're a glorified roommate. And that needs to stop and you need to go to one another and seek forgiveness and you need to express deep brokenness and repentance and say, I, I have not treated you like a friend at all and I wanna start refostering this relationship with you at a friendship level. Some of you are beginning to place habits in your life that are actually going to drive you apart over the long run. 
Some of you in your lives right now, and, and some of you, I need to talk to you young parents for a second. Some of you are actually confusing the order of primacy in your relationships in your own home. You have placed your children above your spouse. And I, I just, I need, to, I need to warn you very lovingly and carefully, listen, listen, you may have your kids for 20, maybe 30, if, if you're lucky in today's world, 35, maybe even 40 years. <laughs> but eventually they're not going to be there. And way too many couples get to the place where their kids are no longer in the house any longer and they look at their spouse and they say, I don't even know you. But, but you have to see this, it begins here. It begins at this level when right now as a young parent or maybe you're soon to have children or maybe you've already kind of gone down this road and these habits are forming where you need to stop that right now and you need to put the spouse at the place of primacy uh, next to God, you're below God. But in God's order, God says your spouse matters most, your spouse is most important. By the way, when you do that, your kids only benefit more. Are you cultivating right now a friendship that is based on a life that is being completely shared? If you're unmarried and you plan to stay that way, that's okay, that's, that's, that's fantastic and I would encourage you, listen, strive to live in the body of Christ with deep and meaningful friendships. God has friendships for you in the body of Christ and it's not, it doesn't have to be a spouse. You see, friendship is ultimately a deep oneness that develops as two people journey together towards the same horizon. And that oneness is expressed in a special way, especially in the context of marriage for married couples. Marriage is given so that secondly, we might enjoy deep intimacy. The deep friendship ultimately leads to an experience and an enjoyment of a deep intimacy that God has designed. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. That word, one flesh, speaks to an intimacy of life that is overwhelming and overarching. This goes, listen, it goes beyond the sexual relationship, but it absolutely includes it. Your sexuality is a part of your humanity. It's not the absolutely defining part of who you are, but it is an incredibly important part of who God has made you to be. He made them in the beginning, male and female, Sex was designed to be enjoyed within the context of the marriage covenant. We looked at that a few weeks back. All sexual intimacy is reserved in God's worldview and in God's word for the marriage relationship. It is the very means by which the covenant that we enter into is consummated, but, it, but listen, here's what you need to understand. The sexual intimacy of a relationship is the very means by which God gives you to constantly remind you of the covenant relationship you entered into. It's a constant refresher of the love you're supposed to have towards one another, of the oneness you're supposed to experience with one another in all of your life. It's a holistic concept that is painted for us. And the sexual intimacy in a marriage is one of the deepest forms of intimacy that we can experience, but it really does depict ultimately what the entire relationship is intended by God to look like. 
That one flesh relationship is a very profound way to live your lives and to live in the context of relationships. You see, in this one flesh relationship, you'll notice the next phrase there, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That has everything to do with one flesh concept and theology. The idea is this, that in the the one fleshness of our relationships, there is nothing to hide, there are no barriers, that there's no masking anything, there's no covering anything up, we are an open book for one another. We express and we share every part of our lives with one another. And really, if you think about it, that's what sexual intimacy really paints the picture of, right? The place where we are most vulnerable, the place where we're most transparent, the place where we give ourselves to each other fully and freely, that represents what we are to do in the entirety of our married lives. And this is so important because so many people hold back from one another in the marriage relationship and part of the reason you may not be enjoying and experiencing enjoyment in intimacy, I don't just mean sexual, I mean total intimacy in your relationship is because you have put up barriers in your life. You are withholding yourself from your spouse. You're not giving yourself over in those areas of your life to your spouse. You've compartmentalized your life so much so that you have some rooms in in your own house that you will not allow your spouse to go into. Whenever you put up barriers, you hinder the enjoyment of the intimacy that God is intending for you to experience. Now sexual intimacy is a really massive part of every relationship, at least it is in different stages. I don't wanna overemphasize it, it's, it's not, It's not the ultimate in a relationship, and again, things ebb and flow in seasons of relationships, but I I wanna just really touch on this quickly. Listen, the desire for sex is not like the need for food or water. That's what the world wants you to believe. It's just a carnal, fleshly instinct, and it can simply be met, and it doesn't need to be met in the context of marriage. Listen, that, that your sexual expression is really all about you just enjoying um, really the passions of the moment. We have a, a, a culture that is obsessed with hookups. I think that's right, right? Am I still kind of, I'm getting older, I'm feeling this, the language barrier. We have this hookup culture, really, that presses this into our, our youth in particular and our young children, that, that it really, the relationship doesn't matter, that you can be friends with benefits, that it, it's really just about the physical and has nothing to do with the emotional, it has nothing to do with the spiritual, and yet, biblically speaking, all these things are interwoven. The physicality of, of the sexual relationship has everything to do with the emotional and the spiritual well-being of your spouse. To divorce these things is to limit, it is to limit the intended experience of the sexual union. To take away any part of what God has put together is ultimately to do it damage. And I just, I just maybe just three really practical ways to think about sex in our, in our really hyper-sexualized culture. First is this, don't treat sex as transactional. And I, if you're not married, you definitely better be paying attention to that. You can't be giving yourself to anybody. But I want to say this to the married couples in here. Sex cannot be viewed as transactional in your marriage relationship. There's, there's no, I'll do this for you if you do this for me. That is really unhealthy. There's no withholding this so you can get your way. That's destructive to a marriage. It's not healthy in a marriage. And this is, it goes against what the Bible would say. Here's the second thing. Don't treat sex as if it's trivial. Way too many people, here's what I think happens, the longer maybe you've been married and the longer, the harder life has become, sex has just become something that's trivial in your life and in your relationship and it's something that you don't pay much attention to and I would just wanna urge you, you need to. 
It's very important in God's eyes, that refreshing, that renewal of the covenant that you've entered into. It's an important aspect of every healthy marriage so long as it's possible. The third thing is this, don't treat it as its total. Don't treat sex as if it's ultimate. And that's what our culture wants to do. It wants to place sex on this pedestal that is above everything else, and sex makes a really poor God. You don't have to get married and have sex, by the way, to have a happy life. Again, that would exclude Jesus, and that's a very big problem for me. It is a means of enjoying and expressing your oneness. Intimacy and oneness reaches into every area of life and is profoundly connected to a deep friendship. By the way, the deeper your friendship, these things are going in order here, okay? The deeper your friendship, the greater the experience of intimacy in your relationship. All right, third thing here. Here's what marriage is for, producing deep stability. And there's a pun intended there. Be fruitful and increase in number. Remember the command that was given at the beginning? Part of the reason for marriage and for sex is reproduction. And I, again, I think we're doing a fine job of this, so I'm not gonna go into too much detail. But, <laughs> but family, listen, family is the building blocks of society as a whole. And this is the way that God established it from the beginning. He makes two individuals that are compatible at a sexual level, and he says, go be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. We're getting close. Marriage was seen as being given by God, listen, not merely to Christians, but to benefit the entirety of humanity. Lifelong marriage was seen as creating the only kind of social stability in which children grow and thrive. As I said before, listen, a strong marriage, when you put your spouse first in terms of relationships in the home, a strong marriage produces a strong family. This is the way that God designed it from the beginning. And by the way, statistics bear this out. Even secular statistics demonstrate there are massive problems. You, there are predictors, indicators that, that children who grow up in broken families, missing one spouse, this isn't always, but generally speaking, they end up doing worse in life in general. Why is that? It's because God designed the family unit to produce flourishing and stability, the very thing that children need. And I understand, listen, we live in a broken world and our sin has done a lot of damage and so some of us have simply just tried to do the best with what life has dealt us and with what our sin has done in our lives and in others' lives and what other people's sin has done to us and I understand all of that and there's just a wealth of grace in all of this. We need to be assured of this. This is God's plan for healthy children. You see, God has given us, if you're a parent in here or you want to be a parent, God has given you the privilege of raising up the next generation of followers of Jesus Christ. And everything you do, the way you live your lives, the way you structure your home, the way you interact as a couple, the way you interact with your children, everything is geared towards the discipleship of the next generation so that God's glory might be spread across the world so that there might be continually, listen, for generation and generation and generation until the coming of Jesus Christ, there might be lights in the darkness. And this was God's plan. By the way, this is why we're doing something like Parenting with Purpose. It's just a shameless plug, okay? We wanna serve you, we want you to really take seriously the importance of discipling your children, of having a home that is stable and thriving so that your children can be stable and thriving. 
Marriage and family are not only for our enjoyment, they're given to help us. Fourth, what's marriage for? It's to help us pursue deep purpose. You'll notice again, the word there, I I will make him a helper, fit for him. This partner, this perfect completer, the one who comes alongside, here's the idea, to help achieve a goal. Now this is not to diminish, by the way, one spouse, this is not to diminish women. In fact, this very word, this idea of completer or helper is actually, if if you're like, well this is showing us inequality between the sexes. No, not anywhere close, because this term is actually used of God himself in the Psalms. It says that God is my helper. It's used other places in secular literature for military reinforcements without which an army would be utterly crushed and and destroyed. You see, the idea here is that it's a helper that is suitable, meaning someone who is equal, a partner you trust with all that you are and all that you have for the sake of joining together in a common calling and mission. And you have to really tie this back to God's original design in creating humanity. You see, when God created Adam and Eve, remember what he did? He placed them in a garden, right? And he actually gave them a task to work the garden, to expand the garden, and even to be fruitful and multiply. The idea is this, that man could never do this alone. Man always needed help. But the imagery of gardening is really important. One of the things that we need to see is that God placed Adam and Eve in this garden, but the intention wasn't to stay there, not fully. It was to push the boundaries of the garden across the world. And this is ultimately about imaging God to all of creation. This is ultimately about demonstrating the rule of the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But to do this, we need to see one another in the proper light. We need to actually be living with our spouses, talking with our spouses, praying with our spouses, working with our spouses, doing life together if we're going to accomplish a common calling and a common mission. How many of us have never even considered God's greater purpose for our marriage? How many of us have maybe been trapped in more of a worldly way of thinking that marriage is actually about our happiness instead of about God's glory? Our oneness helps us image God to the world It helps us, when we do this rightly, display God to the world, spreading again his glory across the earth, pushing back the boundaries of Eden. You see, marriage is a means to an end. Most of us don't think of it this way. Meaning, in in essence, that it exists for something far greater than itself. And I'm not suggesting that you have to have all the particulars figured out and how God may be calling you as an individual couple and what specifically God is calling you to do as a couple, although that's a really, really good thing to be thinking and talking and praying about. But at the very least, one of the things you have to embrace is that you better be able to say that your calling, at the very least, is to live for the glory of God and to make known the love of Christ to all the world. To seek first in your relationship and in your personal life, so whether you're married or not, this is the same reality, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. You see, some of our marriages are really struggling because we've become far too busy at building our own kingdoms. We've lived 
for ourselves, we live for our kingdoms, we live for our careers, we've even lived for our families, putting them out of perspective in terms of God's economy. We've lived for our hobbies, we've lived for our reputation, I mean, you name it, you can insert whatever it is that you have been living for. And in the process, we often don't see that we have failed to live together towards a common calling. And for some of us here today, we need to be able to assess that and to recalibrate the kingdom that we have been living for Marriage is a partnership in pursuit of God and his kingdom. It is a means by which we are becoming holier and more like Christ, and it is the means by which God is wanting to display, listen, in a powerful way, his love for this broken world. And that's that's where we need to end this morning. We are living in a broken world. Sin's corruption has infected every part of it and us, and ultimately the primary objective of marriage is to demonstrate, listen, this is so, so important, and it fits right in line with our entire theme in the book of Ephesians, is to demonstrate how all of creation is being made new and is brought under total subjection to Jesus Christ. This is the primary purpose of marriage. When you live marriage the way God has designed you to live it, you are screaming to this broken world, listen, God is going to make all things right. Your marriage becomes a billboard for the reconciling power of God. You say, how is that possible? Here's what Paul says in Ephesians 5.28, and we're gonna get into this in a couple weeks. Paul says, this mystery is profound, and when he's speaking of marriage, he is speaking of Christ and the church. You see, in other words, God says, Marriage is actually displaying this powerful reality that God so loves this broken world that he would give himself for this world and restore this world back to himself so that they might no longer live for themselves but to live for him in his glory. And that is fleshed out in such a powerful way when we begin to get into discussing the roles of husbands and wives and how we operate together and in understanding that, we ultimately display the reconciling power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, the gospel is both the purpose and the paradigm for every marriage. It tells us most profoundly what our marriage is for, and in doing so, it actually tells us how to live it. Every healthy, thriving marriage is ultimately about Christ. Every healthy and thriving marriage is ultimately built on Christ. And we show the world what it's like to live under Jesus Christ by building our lives and marriages upon Jesus Christ.